Greetings from the humongous. Roads? Well, we're going, we don't need roads. I don't know what the hell's in there. It's weird and pissed off, whatever it is. Human sacrifice, dogs and cats living together. This is the chopper! I'll have what she's having. Hey, Dr. Jones, no friends for love! Hey, hey, Sal, how come the brothers on the wall here? You want brothers on the wall? Get your own place, you can do what you want to do. You are nothing but unorganized, grabastic pieces of amphibian shit! Society made me what I am. That's bullshit. Yeah, that's simply the way they talk here. Nobody pays any attention to you unless you swear every other word. What did the pajamas look like? I don't know. They were jammies. They had Yodas and shit on them. It's such a fine line between stupid and clever. He sends one of yours to the hospital, you send one of his to the morgue. That's the Chicago. And we're back on Film Driven. I'm Andre Shane. I'm Steve Askin. And Steve, uh, in our ongoing salute to the films of the 80s, I think, uh, well, we, we're managing to have one of our dreams come true. And, uh, you know, for years, we've been threatening to do a music podcast, and we've yet to do one. And today, we finally get our chance, Steve. Yeah, we kind of are. We're going to discuss uh, music, but, you know, not not music of the 80s in general, but music of the 80s and how it related to movies in the 80s. Movie music of the 80s. Correct. Absolutely, absolutely. And the 80s was uh, was actually an interesting time for uh, for movie music, right, Steve? I uh, It's, uh, again, I feel that the decade doesn't get enough credit in many ways. But uh, what really separated the... The movie music of the '80s from the other decades. I mean, certainly there was, you know, there was movie musicals that have been going back to the 1930s to the advent of sound, right? What we call classic Hollywood movie musicals. But uh, what made the '80s different, of course, was the advent of MTV, and uh, MTV kind of opened up the whole musical spectrum shall we say of uh of possibilities for movies and movies jumped on that bandwagon real quick yeah i mean we'll go back and discuss uh the 80s certainly weren't the first decade to feature pop songs on the soundtracks of movies but uh you know songs and movies were huge in the 80s and like you say that since everybody was watching MTV, it was an excellent way for movies to kind of uh, publicize their movies. That, you know, if you had a cool song, I mean, the video's half done because half the video could just be clips from the movie, uh, just like an extended preview in a way. So I know there are a lot of uh, kind of lazy videos based on movies where, you know, you, you get some shots of uh, this, the singer lip syncing, you get some movie clips, and bada bing, you got yourself a video. That's right. They literally would take a scene from a movie and uh, and run that scene on MTV, and and we loved it, Steve. We loved it. Couldn't get enough of it. Uh, I 
think it's only fair before talking about the musical films of the 80s is to give a little shout back, a little, a little return to the previous decade. And uh, I think a lot of what's happened in the 80s, like a lot of what we discussed for in our, in our other episodes, um, can be rooted in the films of the 70s. And uh, in the 70s, there were a couple of huge, huge musical films. In fact, it was the late 70s. So it was literally a couple of years preceding the, the 80s. And we had, of course, a little movie called Saturday Night Fever and another little movie called Grease. Both of these were gigantic, gigantic box office hits. And both of these had gigantic soundtracks that accompanied these movies. And, and both of them uh, had the these, same uh, and both had the same leading man. Absolutely. They were both John Travolta movies, of course. And, of course, Travolta was the musical leading man of that era uh, without any question whatsoever. And in some ways, it it, it impacted his uh, dramatic career uh, to a large extent. I think audiences were less likely to accept him in a more serious role, like in a movie Blowout, for example, I think the fact that it starred John Travolta, I think, hurt the box office of the film because he was so closely associated with his musical characters. But that's another discussion, right, Steve? We're talking about musical movies, and one thing for certain, John Travolta was extremely, extremely successful uh, with his musical films, starting with Saturday Night Fever, then moving right into Grease, and then, of course, at the beginning of the 80s, Urban Cowboy, gigantic <laughs> hit, and uh, with a gigantic soundtrack. So the pattern set up in these John Travolta films in the late 70s and early 80s kind of moved into the decade of the 80s and then just kind of propagated out of, out of all reasons, kind of like gremlins, you know, like you add a little water and boom, now every film has a soundtrack associated with has pop songs either specifically written for the film or pre-existing so pop songs that are then used in the actual soundtrack of the film not just on the album that accompanies it but within the film itself to underscore drama or comedy or what what happened yeah well they those two travolta films are interesting because one of them grease is what we would call a traditional musical, you know, right? Where the the characters sing, the characters sing songs about their lives. The songs advance the plot. An old school musical, you know, they yeah, classic Hollywood music. Yeah, but then Saturday Night Fever was not the first of these movies, but it was a, a hit, huge hit that did this thing they would do several times in the '80s and going forward, where the characters don't sing per se. But there's so much music in the movie that the movie's clearly largely based around music. And there's extended, you know, whether it's a dance number set to music or whether it's a scene where, you know, like the whole an extended montage set to a specific song. But just Saturday Night Fever is clearly, you know, it's based around this kind of disco scene and music is such a part of it. But then I could see some people would say, well, it's not a musical because nobody sings in it you know like none of the characters break into or you know they don't sing about their break lives into song. Just, yeah yeah and, th and that is sort of a, a classical hollywood 
musical trope, right, where characters break into songs, and that, of course, was a big thing in the 30s, and, uh, you know, obviously the, the genre had to evolve, but it took it an incredibly long time to evolve, right? I mean, it literally took until the mid-70s for this to kick in. There were, like, a musical was a very traditional sort of musical following, I'd say, closely what was happening on Broadway in musicals, right, Steve? I mean, we'd had, and as a matter of fact, Broadway hits like Camelot and uh, uh, Oliver were then adapted to films. And, of course, the uh, uh, West Side Story and Sound of Music, all of these were stage plays, stage musicals, uh, operettas, as they used to be called. And uh, they were then adapted to films to varying degrees of success. But, uh, but the 80s kind of went in another direction, and they kind of... They more closely, I'd say there were more films in the 80s that followed the new musical path that, as you described, was set by a film like Saturday Night Fever. But we shouldn't forget some of the absolutely standard classical Hollywood musicals that also came out in the 80s. And these movies include um, Best Little Whorehouse in Texas, which everybody's favorite. <laughs> uh, and uh, Little Shop of Horrors, uh, and uh, Absolute Beginners, a British film, uh, and uh, Pennies from Heaven, which I think is the best of the bunch. And I would recommend Pennies to, from Heaven to everyone because it features a lot of this kind of postmodern take on the classic musical. It, it It is set in the 30s during the Great Depression, and it kind of, um, well, again, as a postmodern film, it shows a a conflict between art and reality, uh, between what's actually happening to the character and what they're envisioning happening wrapped in a, in a package of a musical number. And uh, that, that movie is extremely depressing for that very reason, but it's really, really worth seeing. It stars Steve Martin, uh, Christopher Walken, Bernadette Peters. It's, it's a really, really good film. It's ahead of its time. It was a big bomb. It does not have a successful soundtrack accompanying it because the soundtrack of it is essentially old musicals. Uh, but it's really worth checking out. Out of the the label of the classic Hollywood films that came out, uh, classic Hollywood musicals. Yeah, I, I remember really enjoying Little Shop of Horrors, but I, um, it's been a long time since I've seen it. And... Yeah, it's good. Little Shop of Horrors is good. Little Shop of Horrors is like the inverse of what we were talking about, where they essentially made a musical version of a silly old horror film, and then that became a stage play, right? And then they, yes. they, they made a, an original stage play out of the movie, uh, which was usually the other way around, like with The Sound of Music or... Or West Side Story, where the stage I was just play going by the film. Yeah, I was just going by like what was kind of a more traditional musical. I mean, the '80s were a really bad time for traditional musicals on film. Uh, there were some beloved musicals on stage, you know, like the Phantom of the Opera musical debuted in the '80s, um, Les Misérables, which was a huge hit, and uh, Into the Woods. Sondheim was doing some things. So there are these big. There were. Broadway. Cats. Let's not forget cats. Yeah. Well, but so there were Broadway musicals that were huge hits on eighty in the eighties. But what's kind of interesting is it took well into this century for a lot of those to, if they got a film adaptation, they got it way later. 
Uh, you know, it wasn't, um, you know, right. some of the musicals in the 60s were adaptations of stage hits that were, you know, they were hit on stage not that long, you know, maybe five, ten years earlier, and then they had a movie going, bam. And the public just seemed, you know, it's like collectively we as a country were like, you know what, I don't buy this thing in my movies when people just start singing. That seems weird to me. Um, and so, but what it, it didn't mean that we don't like music or even people dancing, but it, it just seemed like in the 80s, the general mood of the public was like, all right, if you're in a band, we can see you singing, you know, and that's fine. But if you're like a guy who works at a grocery store, there's no reason I don't, if you start singing about your job in the middle of the day, that's weird. I don't like it. So, um, right, just right. Dark... I think that artifice, yeah, that natural artifice of the of the genre kind of caught up with the genre, and uh, we had to try something different. And try it, we did. That's right. So there were a, there were a number of huge hits in the '80s, with similar to Saturday Night Fever, um, based around music, even if they're not a traditional musical. Like in the early '80s, and we had a couple. We had uh, Footloose and Flashdance. Some other movies that didn't start with an F. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> well, we, I, uh, again, we had, you know, the Urban Cowboy. I, I, I just want to mention it again because it was so friggin' huge. I mean, that movie had a cultural impact that to this day I think could be seen, you know. And I think it sort of revived country music for what it's worth as a viable commercial uh, enterprise where it's been ever since. And uh, and again, it sort of set this pattern of a movie that's essentially revolves around people's love or reaction to music without actually having them break out into song, but certainly having them break out into dance. And that, of course, is followed then by Flashdance and Footloose and uh, Dirty Dancing a little oh, later in the decade. And fame, um, which also but also big time, yeah, fame. Definitely that another big hit, spawned a television series and uh, and had a very successful soundtrack album as well. Um, I also want to mention a couple of films that revolve around more performance music. Uh, obviously, Purple Rain comes to mind, but a little movie called Eddie and the Cruisers that had a very popular soundtrack and uh, kind of an interesting uh, Citizen Kane-like narrative structure uh, where different characters kind of describe their interaction with the eponymous uh, rock star at the center of the film. Uh, it's it's all right, Eddie and the Cruisers. You ever see that one? I actually have it, yeah. Yeah, it's pretty good, man. It's got a lot of good actors. Alan Barkin's in it, and uh, uh, and Tom Berenger's in it, and uh, uh, the music's pretty good. It's kind of Springsteen-y, uh, and uh, the movie plays pretty pretty cool. I, I kind of enjoy that movie. I think it's got some some things to say about the creative process. It's got some things to say about the dynamics of being in a band, uh, and. Uh, and it's 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 it was kind of a more of a sleeper hit out of the ones we mentioned because virtually every one of those that we just mentioned, which is from Urban Cowboy to Flashdance to Footloose to Purple Rain to Dirty Dancing, gigantic hits, gigantic blockbuster level hits that people couldn't get enough of and MTV couldn't get enough of. Uh, but yeah, Eddie and the Cruisers a little bit less so, but still a worthwhile. Thing to check out. And then, you know, out of these new musicals, of course, we have to mention 
another kind of branch of the musical, which was just weird shit, right? <laughs> and I, by that, I mean a movie like uh, Pink Floyd, The Wall, for example, prime example of just a musical form being taken in a completely, completely unique direction, right? Uh, I'm assuming you've seen The Walls. I have seen The Wall. Yeah, I mean, The Wall is an interesting, might almost be its own thing, because The Wall, you know, did exist as an album. It was a concept album, clearly, but, I mean, it was an album before it was a movie. And um, I'm actually, Andre, are you familiar with how much of, you know, some of the visuals in the movie are clearly, you know, existed in the album art? But I actually don't know the genesis so much. Like, were they always planning to do a movie version of it? And then it just took a few years to get it off the ground? Or do you know the history of that? Because I know, like, The Wall, yeah. the album you came know, out, I, I think, in, like, the late 70s. But then The Wall, the movie, took it. It was a few years later. They didn't come out at the same time. No, certainly not. The Wall, yeah, the, the, I, I think that I don't think there was an intention to make a film out of the Wall right away. But the story of the Wall and the success of the album kind of, I guess, pushed the creators into uh, into trying to, you know, conceptualize what a movie version of the Wall would be. And the movie version of the Wall, which stars uh, Bob Geldof and uh, uh, was uh, directed by Alan Parker, so they got an excellent director. And, uh, you know, the animated sequences are really, really cool. I mean, the movie follows the narrative of the album, and it kind of adds to that narrative. It creates more of a narrative, I would say, if anything, uh, than the album itself. And uh, it's really cool. Again, a bit of a downer, uh, much like the album. But uh, but I agree with you. There, there there is a uniqueness to it, although it's certainly not the first movie that was based on an album. In the seventies, uh, Ken Russell did uh, Tommy, and in the eighties, of course, we got Quadrophenia, another Who opus uh, that was made into a film that was sort of part musical, part English working class kitchen sink drama. Uh, Quadrophini was not a big success. Uh, a lot you know, a lot of like Who fans haven't seen it. But um, The Wall, a lot of people have seen that. Oh, yeah. And I mean, the, and the Wall, I mean, uh, you know, as a somebody who was in high school in the 90s, The Wall certainly endured as a classic let's get together with your friends and smoke a little pot movie, um, which... Or, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that could probably be the yeah. title of Pink Floyd's Greatest Hits album, right? Let's get together with your friends and smoke a little pot. I mean, that's kind of their whole reason to be in, right? But, man, it is a it is a downer. It's a depressing freaking film. Uh, and it's a depressing listen as well. So, uh, you know, again, li like the stuff, uh, the stuff that I enjoyed as a teenager, uh, I don't enjoy so much as a, as a middle-aged adult, but, uh, <laughs> but that's a whole other story. But, but definitely The Wall and Quadrophini as well, definitely kind of, it's a little bit of its own thing. I also want to mention that in this category of its weird, unique, own thing, a little movie called Streets of Fire that uh, I believe I mentioned in our action film episode uh, in passing, talking about... Uh, Walter Hill, the, the film's director. Uh, Streets of Fire is a really, really cool film. I mean, it's an absolutely unique film. It's kind of part Western, part musical, part film noir. Uh, it takes place in its own kind of universe, uh, which, as you know, I always enjoy. Um, and it's got tons of music. It's just all about music. It takes place 
around the world of performing music. All the music in it is original. In other words, it was created specifically for the film. The accompanying soundtrack was a pretty big hit. In fact, the soundtrack was probably a bigger hit than the film itself was because the film is so weird. Uh, but, uh, but I highly recommend Streets of Fire. It's one of my favorite films of the 80s. Uh, it stars uh, Michael Pere and Willem Dafoe is an awesome bad guy. Love him. He's kind of the head of a motorcycle gang. He's just really, really creepy and uh, and committed and, and very memorable. It kind of, had kind of made his career. Uh, uh, it also stars uh, uh, Diane Lane and Rick Moranis and just a lot of, it has a really good cast and uh, a lot of great music, uh, excellent soundtrack. Highly recommend Streets of Fire. Uh, and um, that kind of leads me to talk about the whole soundtracks concept. The concept of the musical soundtrack that accompanies a film, which really, this is, this flowered in the 1980s, right, Steve? Huge, huge. I mean, uh, an online music column I really like, there's a writer named Tom Brehan who writes for Stereogum, and he has this really great column called The Number Ones, where he's going through every song that ever hit number one on the Billboard charts starting from when they mm -hmm. kept track of these things. And, uh, you know, it's, mm. you know, as you imagine, some songs are number one for like three weeks, some songs are number one for one week. But it does a, an interesting comment. So highly recommend this. Anyway, I was looking through his notes, and uh, he's currently up to, like, end of 86, beginning of 87 in his list. And just so far, from 1980 to the middle, early part of 1987, there were over 20 songs from soundtracks that hit number one. So just like an yep. unbelievable amount. And, you know, there's stuff that we would all remember, you know, like Power of Love from Back to the Future, things like that. But then just how big a deal this was, oddball things like the theme from Chariots of Fire hit number one. Oh, you my know? God, I remember that. You could, imagine, Steve, you're driving in your car, you're, you're listening to FM radio, you just heard something by Boston and the next song that comes on is the theme from Chariots of Fire. How fucking crazy is that? It's really bizarre, but it was the number one song in the country. Right. You know, the, the theme from Arthur, you know, like was the number one song in the country. Um, exactly. I mean, there's obvious things like I Have the Tiger, but some of the stuff, it just became so intertwined. Like, you know, the Ghostbusters song hit number one. And it's like, would that song have been number one if the movie wasn't such a big hit? I'm sure not, you know? It's a, it's a goofy song, but it's like, at that time, the world was so in love with Ghostbusters, like everything Ghostbusters. The movie was a huge hit, the song was a huge hit, the video was a huge hit. It all just played over and over. We got things like the Flashdance movie, we said. Both the, the song Flashdance, the What a Feeling song, and a what a maniac. feeling! Yes, sir. And maniac. So that had two Ooh. songs just from Flashdance, number one in songs in the country. So yeah, it was a big yeah. and and one of those things. It's not one or the other, you know. It's like if the movie's a hit, then a song from the movie's a hit, and sometimes a hit song could, you know, increase the box office draw. I mean, there are also songs that hit number one, like one of my favorite movie songs of the '80s is. Uh, Actually, the Against All Odds, the Phil Collins song. That's uh, right. That song, something about the melody, like when I was, a, you know, it came out when I was a child, and I was always just intrigued by it before I knew what the hell it was. But, you know, that's not a particularly 
well-remembered movie. <laughs> yeah, the song the song was gigantic hit, and of course is 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 an '80s classic hallmark, as it were. The movie, you're right, not well remembered. It was actually it's kind of an interesting concept because that movie was a remake of a classic noir film uh, from the late '40s called Out of the Past, uh, and this one kind of re reimagined it in the world of professional football. Uh, Jeff Bridges got into like some primo physical condition for this film, uh, Steve. I don't know if you remember how pumped up Jeff Bridges was in that movie. It's like crazy. And uh, the soundtrack also featured an excellent Peter Gabriel track uh, called Walk Through the Fire, which is hard to find uh, for Peter Gabriel. Like if you're putting together your Peter Gabriel playlist, uh, Walk Through the Fire, excellent track. That's on the Against All Odds soundtrack as well. Just a little trivial aside. Yeah, but so one of the things that really, again, not the 80s didn't invent this concept, but it really took it to the next level was that I think Hollywood Studios started to look for a hit song on the soundtrack. That if you're putting together your big Hollywood movie that you're hoping will be a blockbuster, one of the elements, you know, along with your stars and your poster or whatever, is you're like, we need a great song to put on the radio. And, yeah, it just became part of the package. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. And I think what you're describing, Steve, can be seen really as a just kind of a giant conglomeration of the media, right? I mean, it's like all these giant media corporations that were, you know, basically putting out all of your entertainment, including your movies, your music, you name it, they were putting it out. Companies like Warner's and... Uh, and Sony and so forth were, you know, j just, it, it was, it was a perfect, uh, uh, what's that word? Um, uh, cohesion? No. Monopoly? What's the word, Steve? <laughs> no, well, that's another word. <laughs> Synergy? I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, synergy is a good word, absolutely. Uh, well, I mean, it, essentially, it, it was just a way to market everything in just one giant, giant swoop. So you got a movie, you got a soundtrack that comes with it. If you can make some toys to go in with it, you'll get to, you'll get some toys get going as well. Uh, T-shirts, products, you name it. But the soundtrack was the primary accompaniment to the largest majority of the films that were coming out in the 80s. It was just a thing. Movie well, comes and, out, soundtrack you know, comes out. Yeah, and then this is also where MTV came into play, that there'd be artists that would become stars on MTV, and then the movie studios would recruit these artists to do a song for their new movie. Like a case in point would be Huey Lewis and the News, right? They have some hits. Mm -hmm. They get a lot of airplay on MTV. All of a sudden, you got this movie coming out called Back to the Future. Why don't we get this Huey Lewis and the News guys to give us a song that we can put on the Back to the Future soundtrack and help promote the movie? And voila, Ooh. Power of Love, also a number one hit song. Uh, same with, I mean, Phil Collins, probably the whole reason he got to do that against all odds thing is because he was starting to get a lot of, like, radio and MTV love. Um Obviously, you know, Madonna got recruited for various songs after she made it big with the Like a Virgin sound, uh, album. So, you know, she did Crazy for You. That was a number one song that Madonna got picked for the, yeah. for the movie. And so Madonna got 
instantly dragged into showbiz right away because that was the thing with music videos, Steve. Like in music video, it really helped if you were attractive. So a lot of the less attractive rock stars from the 70s, as successful as they may have been, did not slide well into the world of the music videos because they weren't particularly photogenic. They were musicians, right? But then in the 80s, you had like really, really good looking people popping up as pop stars such as Madonna or Billy Idol or, you know, Bowie had an incredible career revival that largely revolved around just his on-screen presence and, and his looks, you know, and uh, his, uh, his musical output in the 80s certainly was uh, nothing to write home about in terms of quality, but man, it was extremely successful. Again, because it tied in so well with uh, with looking good in the music video, so it it, it was all tied in. It, it was yeah. just all conglomerized. Well, it's almost the opposite of what happened with the advent of sound in movies, right? Where you know there were some actors who uh, were very photogenic and looked great on camera and could deliver, you know, a great performance, but then. They did not have the vocal chops that once sound became a thing. There were a, That's there right. was an issue. Yeah. And uh, and now this was, was the reverse of that. And uh, like one of my favorite stories from the early days of MTV, uh, this is kind of an aside, of course, but, you know, there are all these bands like Boston and 38 Special that aren't particularly attractive, as you say. And they also didn't quite know, know what to do with this music video format. Like, well, what do we what do we do with that? And right. then um, then there was this kind of a kind of bluesy bar type band from texas called zz top and those guys took a look (laughs) at this thing and they said you know what we're not we're not actors like we can't really like we can't have a video where we like pretend to do like go on an adventure or something you know like madonna would basically star in her videos and she could play a role but they're like we can't do that so they're like we'll get some like good looking women we'll get a cool car and then we've got some beards. Those are kind of funny. So then as long as we're not featured too much in it, then uh, that's good. Like, don't make the video about us. We're like cameo players in our own video. But yeah. Yeah, it, yeah. it worked great. They were great. Well, it, you know, it was easy top. The marketing worked out beautifully because they, there, there was this sort of iconic level to them. I mean, talk about not attractive. Those guys are like aggressively not attractive. <laughs> but but with the beards and their looks, and it just kind of worked. Who I mean, it's such a mystery what becomes popular and what doesn't. ZZ Top are mysterious. I mean, they were a killer band and still are. But the fact that they were gigantic MTV stars in the 80s is still kind of it's absurd. It's it's just a little friggin' weird. But uh, I'm 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 glad for them. But yeah, so they had these hits, and you know, along with the soundtrack hits, you had people like Madonna and Prince who became such big stars that then they were able to parlay that into movie careers, and that's certainly been going on for decades and decades. But unlike, say, when Elvis started making movies, like you know, Elvis would be on TV, but you didn't get Elvis videos, you know, there wasn't like a no. regular parade of essentially short films starring Elvis for a long time before the movies. So by the time Elvis made, okay. when Elvis made movies, that was your first chance to see Elvis, you know, acting such as it were. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> yes. but like by the time Madonna or Prince are in a movie, you've already seen 10 videos of these people. So you're kind of aware of That's their right. on-screen perform uh, persona. Um, you know, you've seen them 
especially Madonna, essentially pretend to be other people, yet still kind of Madonna in her videos. And yeah, absolutely. It's a that's a completely unique thing. Like you, you like they were almost prepackaged uh, movie stars in the making, and 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 really most of them did not go on to be movie stars. I mean, we can we can have a conversation about Madonna's music uh, movie career. It's pretty it's pretty sad. Some just like never made it out of the gate, like Billy Idol, uh, and others did some interesting work, like Sting. You know, but uh, but uh, we we had a rock star movie star uh, episode a few years back, and uh, and uh, it's a little bit of slim picking. But uh, the big swing for the fences for movie stardom in the '80s was done by Prince in a little movie called Purple Rain. Am I right? Purple Rain, yes. Uh, Purple Rain is. Uh, I mean, I love Purple Rain. Purple Rain is. If anyone's never seen it, it's a really great almost half and half movie where uh, the you know in yeah. purple rain prince portrays essentially himself but he's called the kid and uh, so so much of it is just like prince's life like um they try to fictionalize it loosely but the thing about purple rain is all the scenes of his band the revolution performing or uh, or the time the other band the musical numbers are fantastic like they're great. Mm-hmm. They sound great. They right. look cool. They're a moment of their right. time. And they're live. They're they're recorded live. We're forgetting yeah. per, the, like the songs that that we associate with that movie are live performances captured on film, which makes them kind of special. Yeah, they were great. But then uh, the dramatic bits of Purple Rain are, uh, I mean, they're terrible, but terrible in like an entertaining way. Yes. So <laughs> it, whenever people ask me. You know, they're like, was well, Purple Rain a good movie? And I, I never quite know what to say to them because it's not like a good movie the way like Goodfellas is a good movie. Yeah, uh, yeah. But it is. It's like the musical bits are fantastic. And then the non-musical bits are entertainingly bad. So it's a good time at the movies. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I think uh, I think it's a good movie. I think it's a good movie, especially since, you know, most of the leads in that film are non-actors. They're, they are all musicians. So Morris Day is a musician. He's never acted before. Prince really has never acted prior to this movie. The leading lady, Apollonia, never acted before. Outside of the, the, the actor who played Prince's father in that and also his mother, uh, it seems like the movie's just packed with non-professional actors, and with that in mind, it's quite good. And again, the entertainment level is is very high, very high well, all around. It's also it, it's you know it's this lightly fictionalized version. I mean, maybe even an idealized version of the Minneapolis scene in the early '80s, which is a fascinating scene. I mean, it's uh, it gets more fascinating to me by the day. It's one of those things like. I, I mean, I've said this for years, but you know, like the Beatles, okay, bunch of dudes go in their garage and make some rock music. You know, like you get the concept of that, like how these bands are formed. But Princess Music is just stunning to me that up in Minneapolis, icy cold, frozen Minneapolis, there's <laughs> this whole world of like eccentric, like funk music made by like, you know, truly oddball people and uh, i don't know it's it's a fascinating scene if you weren't in it that it yeah yeah 
it, it seemed fascinating, and, and the movie did it justice, right? Be like, you really get a glimpse of that world, and that's what I think unquestionably makes Purple Rain a good movie, is because it just... It, it gives you that world. It gives you the world of the Minneapolis music scene. It gives you this really unique, in its time, both musically and culturally, in terms of fashion. It was, it was completely multiracial. There was like this mix of nothing mattered. Everything could be incorporated and, and amalgamated into this new music that they were making. It was exciting. It was exciting to see. And I tell you, I remember seeing it in the, in a theater in the eighties with an audience and, and boy, that is sure is, um, just a little little sad aside. It is, of course, the only way to see any serious movie. But for a movie like that, it's great, Steve. Like, like the audience was loving the musical numbers, and people were, I wouldn't say people were dancing in the aisles, but it was there was an excitement level that was palpable, and that you know, like you sort of knew it was going to be a hit the second the second you. You know, it started it started rolling, so well, it was there, special. It's it's really good. Yeah, I mean, there was a a week or two in 1984 when Prince had the number one single, the number one album, and the number one movie in the country. I mean, it's kind of hard to fathom that these days that a single person would have that kind of synergy, but it did happen. Right. Right. It, it did happen, and it was a yeah, you know, and and of course that was also the time of Michael Jackson and so forth. Prince, as far as Prince's movie career, it's interesting because Prince, of course, instantly tried to follow up the success of Purple Rain with a couple of other films, right? I I think specifically under the Cherry Moon, uh, which has some great music on it and was successful as a soundtrack, uh, but was 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 not successful as a film. Right, Steve. It was uh, yeah, not, not real good. Yeah, no, it's a uh, that and a uh, graffiti bridge, and then that probably just put the nail in the coffin of Prince's movie career. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it 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 is kind of too bad. I'm I'm wondering like like what hap what went wrong there exactly? Was it just like one of those things where the you know the the, the, the lightning couldn't be captured back in the bottle, as it were, or whatever the case may be. It's just, it's, it's a little sad. But Prince did experience another super successful soundtrack moment in the 80s when he did the soundtrack to the movie Batman, one of the first of the superhero films, for better or for worse. But he was picked to do the soundtrack, which was a very weird and quirky choice, by the way. Uh, but that soundtrack was gigantic, the Batman soundtrack, right at the end of the decade. Yeah, it was. And uh, I don't know what you think of that. I remember at the time, um, I hated it. Like, I just felt like it didn't fit very well with the whole cool Batman vibe they were going for. I mean, of course, as the years pass... That Tim Burton Batman movie seems uh, a lot sillier and a lot less cool than it seemed in 1989. And uh, I almost mean that in a good way. Like, it's kind of like I have affection for that movie because it's just this bizarre pop thing that I don't know. It's like it <laughs> it's a lot closer to the Adam West Batman than I think it it thought it was. So in that context, right? I, I totally agree. Yeah, in that context, yeah. Prince's music works. But if you were going for that kind of cool '80s Frank Miller vibe, then uh, Prince seemed a very bizarre choice for it. 
And, uh, you know, the word is that yeah, it wasn't yeah. like Tim Burton said he was a Prince fan, but like he didn't really like that music. Uh, it wasn't really his decision. Uh, <laughs> it seemed like a studio decision. But again, you're talking about the synergy, right? You're talking about yeah. this combination of various corporate elements put together to make money. And boy, did it make money. The movie made money. The album made money. And honestly, I, I, I agree with you that there's a certain disconnect between the type of music Prince made and Prince himself and the concept of what we view as Batman and what we wanted to see in a Batman movie, or at least I did at the time. Uh, but in retrospect, it works pretty well. I think it works pretty well for that particular film, which, as you said, is a lot campier than most people really wanted. <laughs> but uh, but again, can't argue with success. It was a giant hit yeah. on both both markets. Well, and, and again, I th it was like a Warner thing, right? Oh, Warner yeah, Brothers yeah, very much the so. album. They had Prince on the roster. His contract was running out. He had a bunch of music that had nothing to do with Batman, and they just threw it on the soundtrack, and there you go, the Batman soundtrack. Oh, yeah. Warner Brothers is very much the architect of Prince being the music for Batman. They're like, let's put one of our biggest artists on this, uh, on one of our biggest movies. But oh, it, the Bat Dance thing kind of jives with it goes hand in hand with the question of like why Prince never had another movie hit as big as Purple Rain. And it's just that Prince himself is just such a weirdo. So like he's not a guy. Yeah. I don't even know. I, I'm not sure that how much of an interest Prince had in uh, appearing in other movies, especially like playing a character. The you know Prince is always kind of Prince, and Prince is his own. Right. Unique person and and i love prince but you know certainly one of the odder people to be a gigantic super duper duper star um, but yeah so yeah but 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 you know that that whole like the individualism of a guy like prince or even of a madonna theoretically could have translated to movie stardom as well because if you think about it i mean the biggest movie stars are always playing the same basic character, you know. John Wayne's always John Wayne. Sometimes he could be evil. Sometimes he could be good. But but he's basically the same guy. Same goes for Tom Cruise. Same, you know. Same goes for Humphrey Bogart, and so on and so forth. That's what a movie star is. But somehow none of these '80s rock stars, with their very specific persona, were able to truly move into movie stardom it just never happened for any of them uh, my whole like i've got this whole theory about madonna is that she just could never relax enough to forget that she was being photographed that, yeah that, she was always too self-conscious to be a real actor yeah yes. so even when she you know like she certainly put forth the effort you know it's uh, the downside of what we talk about with some actors well her agents put forth the the effort i don't know how much effort she put forth but, well, but, I, but i feel like i've seen movies like Vita where you like it's almost palpable how much Madonna is trying. She's trying. In Evita, she's trying above and beyond. I think that was sort of her last attempt at, like, like just take it to the limit, and if this doesn't work, forget it. But she can and, never, she can never relax and just be the character. You know, it's always, no, no. she's always, in every frame, she's aware, like, I am Madonna pretending to act. And uh, I feel it comes through. Yeah, it certainly does. It certainly does. And it's a, you know, it's a different skill set. Let's be honest. Being a musician and being an actor are different skill sets, completely different skill sets. So it makes sense that it wouldn't 
usually it doesn't work. This usually is, it doesn't. So this work. is kind of an aside, Andre. What's your do you have a favorite Madonna performance? No. <laughs> I don't. I hate them all. I think she's a terrible actress. You know uh, the and, the, and, and, the one I really have affection for is she has a very small role in this movie called Blue in the Face which is kind of an offshoot of the movie Smoke in the 90s. And she yeah. she plays like a stripper gram or something. And it's uh, she shows up and gives a little dance and a song to Harvey Keitel's smoke shop owner. And what's great about it is because it's it's only a few minutes long and she's funny and charming and it's just like a great three-minute dose of her. Where there's no heavy lifting yeah. required, and uh, and in that scene she's utterly charming. So if it was all like that, you'd be like, oh, who's that? We should put her in more movies. But uh, unfortunately, we know the answer to that. Yeah, yeah, I, di- I didn't see her in that film. Uh, yeah, I got a soft spot in my heart for the James Bond movie, uh, Die Another Day, in which she has a cameo and she does an absolutely atrocious theme song for as well. Yes. So essentially, that film with all of its other problems also has the the dubious dis- uh, distinction of being a movie Madonna basically shit all over. <laughs> but uh, we digress, Steve. I, I think we were talking about soundtracks and, and you know, I think this is a good time to talk about some of our favorite soundtracks from the 1980s. What do you say, Steve? You want to delve into that? I could sure. lead the way, my friend. I could lead the way. Let me just... Like I'm going to just start naming off some of the biggest soundtracks of the decade, we, we can talk about them. Top Gun. Top Gun. We uh, we discussed this quite a bit in the uh, in the top in the action movie podcast. Anybody should check out if they haven't heard it. The Top Gun soundtrack is very much of its time. Um, it's hard for me to objectively comment on the Top Gun soundtrack. Uh, I certainly have a soft spot for it. It's way over the top. Um, I mean, my favorite thing about if you watch Top Gun is clearly the filmmakers were in love with that soundtrack because most of the big hits from that soundtrack play in that movie twice, which continues to just crack me up. The idea that you would play a song in the movie and then an hour later just play it again. (laughs) Yeah, well, it becomes sort of a replacement for, uh, like, soundtrack composed music right so instead of composing a theme for the lovers you have uh berlin's take my breath away popping up all over the place and this was a common use for music in the 80s again i almost felt bad for some film composers at that time because obviously it's a lot easier to just take a pop song and stick it in the movie. But in the case of a lot of these movies, these were pop songs written originally for the film. But there are certainly soundtracks that are full of uh, existing, like pre-existing pop songs. I mean, The Big Chill comes to mind. I mean, that movie, it's like a baby boomer circle jerk, right? And it's just full of, like, big hits from from the 60s and 70s, you know, from Brokel Harem to the Rolling Stones, and even Top Gun has a classic 60s song in it as one of its central songs, which the character actually sings in the film, (laughs) on screen, old musical style, right? I mean, we kind of forget about that scene, but that's, you know, that's, that's right out of old musicals. Tom Cruise actually sings. Uh, I don't think he sings since that, right? I think we've we, we don't have to we don't have to endure that anymore, 
right. No, like he would sing, you know, a little bits here and there in a movie, but not. Thankfully, never released a single. Right, right, right. But but his big breakout film, of course, Risky Business, like revived an old song with the old time rock and roll became a big hit again for Bob Seger. That song is from the seventies. It was featured, of course, fam famously in Risky Business over that scene where Tom Cruise is go goofing around in his underwear, and that, of course, as you said, was taken directly out of the movie put on MTV and old time rock and roll one of Bob Seger's shittiest songs becomes a giant hit once again and we have to deal with it all over again <laughs> uh, Dirty Dancing are you a fan of Dirty Dancing? Uh, I mean uh, yes and no uh, again it's hard for me to objectively talk about Dirty Dancing it was very wrapped up I mean Dirty Dancing um, you know it came out right on I was right on the cusp of puberty and uh the girls in my life couldn't love Dirty Dancing anymore. It seemed impossible. Uh, I do. I am kind of a fan of Dirty Dancing. I'm charmed by it. Um, one of the things I applaud Dirty Dancing is Dirty Dancing took the soundtrack to the next level of they really did have their lead actor sing one of the main songs in the movie. Absolutely, absolutely. Patrick Swayze, who actually was a musician and could actually sing, and it worked out pretty well, had a hit. That is unusual. I agree with you. Yeah, that soundtrack is kind of impressive, almost in a in a corporate assembly way of that it combined, like you say, the baby boomer nostalgia, but then also songs very much in the style of the 80s, like the uh, the Time of My Life song, you know, a song about looking back, but done very much in the style of other 80s hits of the day. So, yeah, I don't know. Dirty Dancing is, uh, it's all right. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't, it was certainly not in my wheelhouse, but I do know that my friends in college, some of them really loved the film and watched it over and over again. Again, you can't, it's hard to argue with success, Steve. It was very successful. It was huge. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, it was it was a phenomenon, absolute phenomenon, and it's really not a bad film actually if you break it down. The movie itself is not bad; it's just not, you know, not not something I wanted to be watching in the '80s per se. But again, very big hit. Um, what I did like in the '80s was The Lost Boys. That was uh, that was right up my alley, and that had a very successful and very cool soundtrack. I mean, for my money, one of one of my favorite uh, of the '80s soundtrack. I mean, that movie had. Um, you know, artists like Echo and the Bunnymen and In Excess doing a lot of songs. And there were a lot of, like, actually cool songs in it. If you, you could listen to the soundtrack album and not just wait for the big hits, but actually enjoy it overall and hear, you know, hear some new songs that, uh, and, you know, find new artists that you may not have been aware of up to that point. So um, really, uh, really like the the old Lost Boys. Yeah, well, that's the Lost Boys is an example of uh, there are a bunch of soundtracks in the movies, specifically to like John Hughes films, where the music on the soundtrack was a lot more kind of progressive and interesting to me than the movies themselves. Um, and I've heard this is true of John yeah. Hughes, the person. Like, John Hughes was kind of famous for going to like Wax Tracks Records in Chicago and supposedly kind of had pretty hip musical taste. Um, I don't know why, sure. you know. The idea that somebody who is really into the Smiths and the psychedelic furs at the time would have such broad taste and humor is kind of a uh, weird to me. But <laughs> <laughs> so, wow, well, uh, that's that's 
that's an, that's our previous episode, yeah. Steve. But uh, but uh, but yeah, I, I actually you know, Pretty in Pink has a has has a fantastic soundtrack, and and the Breakfast Club does too. I mean, these soundtracks are so iconic because unlike a soundtrack like The Big Chill, which basically mines music of the previous generation and the previous decades, uh, movies like Pretty in Pink, Less Than Zero. Uh, and uh, Breakfast Club include a lot of music of the now. Not now, now, then now, but, you know, the 80s. So they include a lot of these cool new wave music uh, and, and, you know, sort of introduced me to a lot of these bands that I wasn't aware of. And a lot of these songs become huge hits. And, of course, I'm nostalgic for that time because that music was actually organic and original to the time. It wasn't a ripoff of the previous decade. It was a genuinely sort of original genre, or the genre is almost too limiting. It was a music of all genres, but it was original to the 80s, and we haven't really seen a time like that in music since the 80s, honestly, Steve. You mean Everything on, on has- soundtracks? I mean and music across the board, Steve. I mean everything became a little postmodern after the 80s. You know what I mean? Like, the, like there was no band like Depeche Mode before Depeche Mode, right? I mean, there were people making electronic music, I say, in the 70s. But, you know, when, when, you, when you got into these this uh, sort of new wave, post-punk era, the 80s were a unique time. I mean, this was genuinely an original music that wasn't copying other musical forms like let's say rock and roll was pretty much from the beginning, right? It was copying the blues and so on and so forth. Uh, So I know I digress from the film music, but again, I have to give out a certain degree of appreciation for the 1980s for being the last decade before postmodernism kicks (laughs) in and, and everything becomes a copy of what came before. I, I don't know if I agree with that at all, but uh, that's a bold statement. That's interesting. <laughs> it's a hot take, Steve. Uh, it's I, a hot take. I I'm would... willing to argue that, but maybe in another episode. Yeah. I, maybe uh... we should do a music episode, not just of the 80s, but but that that's honestly, I've been listening to a lot of 80s music and a lot of 80s soundtracks, and really this is what I, I honestly postulated that. I think the 80s was the last time there was genuinely original music happening. Well, uh, uh, and... I, I, I think I think every fan of the genre known as hip hop would like a word. And, uh, well, but you got to remember that hip hop originated kind of in the '80s and kind of came of age. I'm including hip hop in that in that world. Yeah, I, totally. I just don't know that I agree that every all the music after the '80s was referencing other music. But anyway, anyway. Okay, uh, all right, that's okay. fine. We we agree to disagree. Uh, how do you like uh, Fast Times in Ridgemont High? The soundtrack. Oh, remind me. Well, we're so, I guess that you know, I I don't have any strong feelings about it as a soundtrack. I can't even remember what were some of the individual songs off that. Well, it was there, there was a good. It wasn't a giant hit soundtrack, but it had a soundtrack chock full of cool music from different eras. That was a hodgepodge. There was newer stuff that was like '80s, specifically '80s stuff. There was a lot of California stuff, uh, but there was also classic rock like uh, Led Zeppelin on it. You know, before Led Zeppelin apparently started charging too much money for people to ever use their music again. Yeah, I mean, I wonder if, if that was specifically cool. a uh, Cameron Crowe 
favor they did. Well, I don't know what the favor was, but that was a very early Cameron Crowe movie, and Cameron Crowe was not a name. So, and he, of course, did not direct Fast Times. So, uh, you know. No, was, but uh, I mean, it, like, wasn't the whole? It wasn't Cameron Crowe part of his like claim to fame was that he was essentially the almost famous kid. Like he did articles right. about Zeppelin when he was a kid. Like, so he had a connection with Led Zeppelin as a music Very journalist. Yeah, before he yes. was even uh, associated with movies. Very possible. Very possible. That's that. I do not know that. Uh, if somebody knows it, I I would love a message on Facebook to tell me the story of the use of cashmere uh, in the film uh, Fast Times at Richmond High. Pretty well used, except in a weird way he gets the album wrong because he specifically says that the ultimate makeout album is Led Zeppelin 4 and the very next scene Cashmere comes on and Cashmere is from it's not on Zeppelin 4 no. it's not on Zeppelin 4 <laughs> not on Zeppelin 4 yeah it's on physical graffiti so it, it's uh, it's kind of weird it's, it's, it's a weird winking mistake I think intentional uh, or maybe that's the only song they could get but it works great in that movie and um and another one I really like is Valley Girl. Like that movie, that's a smaller film. That's one of Nicolas Cage's uh, first starring films. And uh, that has some great new wave music. It's just great. You know, it has modern English. And uh, I mean, just just really authentic stuff that people were actually listening to, that I was listening to at that time. And that kind of makes it special to me. Yeah, I have a soft spot for the, uh, the Repo Man soundtrack, which uh, yeah, had a lot of great be. early punk music. Uh Yes. One of the standout hits from that was, uh, of course, Institutionalized by Suicidal Tendencies. <laughs> huge, huge hit. Suicidal yeah. Tendencies, absolutely. The, the the theme to Repo Man by Iggy Pop is pretty fun. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that that that's a punk rock movie all the way, and it has a punk rock soundtrack, and it works perfectly. And again, this is, this is what we have in the 80s that did not happen in the decades prior to the 80s. Like, this was what the 80s gave to popular culture is a successful or attemptedly successful movie soundtrack. And and again, uh, that's one of the reasons we're doing this uh, salute to the 80s, Steve, right? To kind of give back, to give back some respect to the decade and, and say, you know, they did something that hasn't been done before. And this whole thing with the soundtracks and the incorporation of popular music and, you know, we didn't even talk about some of the television things. Like on television, you had Miami Vice, which was basically what they called MTV Cops initially, but Miami Vice changed the way music was used on television. Oh, huge. Yeah. Prior to the, some, uh... I mean, nobody used uh, popular music in television series prior to Miami Vice to the most part and uh, Miami Vice took it to a massive extent and it was also a very popular soundtrack album. yeah I mean it's funny when you mentioned that that uh, that may be if, if I had to pick one that may be my favorite soundtrack of the 80s but you know obviously not a movie Right, right. But but I think it fits in. I mean, Miami Vice was one of the most cinematic shows on TV. I mean, Miami Vice was was kind of a groundbreaker in many ways. Uh, and and uh, 
and the soundtrack was certainly a groundbreaker in its own right. They had a couple of soundtracks over the years, right? They had Miami Vice 1, Miami Vice 2, and I agree with you. That was one of my favorite soundtracks. You see, that we, we've stumbled upon a common soundtrack that we both love equally, and that is the Miami Vice soundtrack. <laughs> but uh, Well, I also want to mention but, uh, the 80s did a – so one of my favorite film soundtracks of the 80s uh, was The Princess Bride. Uh, which the music is by Mark Knopfler of uh, Dire Straits. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if that was one of the first... Um, Andre, was that one of the first instances of somebody who was previously a rock guy then expanding into soundtracks? Because I don't recall like a lot of that from like the 60s and 70s or somebody who was like a guitarist in a band and then branched into scoring movies. And I always find that funny. Right. That I, I tend to like that music a lot, and I always wonder if that just says something about me, that like I just prefer rock music to classical music. So then a lot of times, even when I do get a traditional score in a movie, that sometimes my favorite scores in movies are written by people who are more considered rock musicians than, say, somebody you know like Howard Shore or someone who... Right, right, exactly. It's good work, but yeah, it's just like well, yeah, I mean, prime example, of course, is Danny Elfman, who came out of the 1980s and 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 doing scores for uh, Tim Burton films, and and uh, of course before that, doing scores for like one of my favorite comedies of the 80s, which is Back to School with Rodney Dangerfield. And, uh, you know, his band, Oigo Boigo, is actually in the film, and he does a soundtrack to the film, and one of his earliest. And, of course, he's a huge, he's a huge composer now, iconic. Uh, so, again, we have 80s to thank for rock musicians sliding into film composition. And then that became a thing. Oh, yeah, musicians. it became a huge thing, and then also became a thing... Um, Especially as you know, some of the music businesses dried up. I know a lot of aging indie rockers who, you know, you're in a band in your 20s, and if you don't turn into uh, U2 or Taylor Swift or something, it gets to be the point where you hit your 40s and you're like, well, I got what else can I do? And uh, maybe I can score some commercials or a movie or something like that. And uh, there's a lot of people I know these days who used to be in bands I liked in uh, the late 90s, early part of the 21st century, who are now trying their hand at scoring movies. Absolutely. Well, I mean, you have got Trent Reznor and uh, Tyler Bates and guys like that who uh, came out of alternative rock who are, who are doing stuff, again, thanks to what happened in the 80s. So, Steve, what can we say in conclusion? I mean, the 80s, very interesting era for cinematic music and very unique era for cinematic music and uh i'm glad i lived through it <laughs> it really really shaped it shaped my my tastes to uh, to a large degree and uh there's something to be said for that all right well i guess we should uh, yeah we'll wrap it up there so uh and until the next time i'm steve haskin i'm andre shane we'll see you next time on film driven everybody shane.